Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash marketplace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash marketplace now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash marketplace. This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. The economy in 2023 did not go the way a lot of folks thought it would. Looking back and looking ahead to what we can expect in the new year, from American Public Media, this is Marketplace. In Washington, D.C., I'm Kimberly Adams, and for Kai Rizdahl, it's Friday, the 29th of December. Good to have you along. So this is our last show of the year, and I went back and checked what we said at the end of 2022 about what 2023 was going to look like in this economy. And at the time, our rappers predicted inflation was going to be the big story of the year, but folks were still trying to figure out if we were headed into a recession or a soft landing. Here to give us their takes on how everything turned out in 2023 in the U.S. economy, Neela Richardson at ADP and Catherine Rampell at The Washington Post. Welcome, you two. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks. Catherine, I want to start with you because you were here with me this time last year and accurately predicted Uh-oh. that inflation was going to be the big story of the year. And unlike many people, you were very cagey about whether we were headed into a recession or a soft landing. So how do you feel about that now? <laughs> oh, I'm so relieved. I don't I did not remember what I had predicted last year. I remember being nervous about a recession mm-hmm. last year, but but maybe I was uh trying to maintain some cautious optimism. Um, this year has been pretty good, you know, <laughs> certainly on paper looks great. The um, labor market has held up, has been remarkably resilient. We've now had two years of sub 4% unemployment. We've had declining um, or moderating inflation, you know, not yet where we want it to be, but within a stone's throw of the Fed's in- inflation target. And some other pretty good milestones. Um, women's labor force participation, at least for, for what's called prime working age workers. Um, for, for those women, it has reached record highs at various points this year. So a lot to celebrate, I think. Neela, what would you say was the big economic story of 2023? 
the consumer. It's like mm. the consumer was humming to LL Cool J the whole year. Don't call it a comeback. We've been here for years, like three years <laughs> spending. <laughs> like inflation didn't matter, no matter what, how high prices came. They came back in the summer. They went traveling. They went to see Beyonce and Taylor Swift. They even went to a Jets game. They went to back to school shopping. They've done holiday spending and they've done this consistently with without regard to higher inflation or higher interest rates. Now, there is some some flies in that ointment. Those interest rates are high and spending is likely to, to slow. But the consumers really made the difference all year long. But Catherine, I want to pick that up with you. We've been saying for months now, it feels like all year that the consumer is going to start pulling back on spending. Is Is there any reason to think that this time will be different? It has been really bizarre because based on what data we have available, it looks like consumers have spent down a lot of their so-called excess savings that they accumulated earlier in the pandemic, you know, from being trapped at home, in addition to getting various government transfer payments. Um, A lot of that cushion has been spent down. On the other hand, because job growth has continued, has been chugging along, that translates into paychecks, which translates into ongoing spending money. Um, so even <laughs> though, you know, whatever might have landed in their bank account a, a few years ago through stimulus checks or, or what have you, that money's gone. Um, you know, it's been somewhat, um, it's, it's been drawn down less quickly, I think than we might have otherwise anticipated because there has been strong job growth, because there has also been strong wage growth, um, particularly nominal wage growth, but in in real terms too this year. So it seems like consumers are are holding up, um, but, you know, never say never. There is obviously the chance that um, as presumably the labor market cools, um, that some of that, you know, some of that increased cash coming in will slow. Neil, let's talk a bit more about this other half of the Fed's mandate, full employment. You know, we have had this consistently uh, low unemployment that Catherine was just talking about. Employers are still complaining about not being able to fill all of these jobs that they need to fill. Um, we've got minimum wage increases coming in a couple dozen states um, this this year. What do you think is the big story on the job front this year and and also looking ahead? Well, that's the thing, Kimberly. I think it is about looking ahead because we tend to think short term when it comes to inflation and Fed action. But what we're seeing in the labor market is actually a long term phenomenon. It's called demographics. And people are not (laughs) going into those roles that they used to go into. When you look at teaching or uh, construction workers or plumbers or electricians, even accountants, we're not seeing the flow that we used to. And we're also seeing a lot of retirements of the baby boomers. So you put those two things together, the flow out, the flow in, and you're seeing a, a, a labor market that has huge gaps, despite all the strength. It's an ongoing problem. And what it does, and you've alluded to it, is it keeps wage pressure strong. And so this inflation battle might be reoccurring, it might come back again in 2024, if the labor market stays as strong as it is now. 
Yeah. So, Catherine, we've got these uh, low jobless claims. Um, we've got stocks doing well. We've got inflation on its way down. I mean, what do you see as sort of the risks to that may kind of mess up the soft landing that there's a lot of markers pointing that we may be on the way to or at? Who knows? Well, there are a, a bunch of wild cards. So I mentioned women's labor force participation earlier. Um the, a major federal child care funding program recently lapsed, and I think we haven't seen the full consequences throughout the child care system and by extension on working parents, particularly working moms. So that could be disruptive. Um, with high interest rates, as Neela mentioned, that is very challenging for a lot of businesses. Uh, commercial real estate, for example, you know, loans that might be resetting, uh, the, 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 loan, the interest rates that might be resetting, that will be very challenging for those companies' business models. So, you know, I think we haven't seen the full effects of rate hikes to date, and we don't entirely understand how they work their way through an, a, a modern economy because we haven't had to experience this series of rapid rate hikes uh, along the lines of what we've had in the last couple of years. So, you know, there are a lot of potential consequences, a lot of potential fallout from that that I think we may not yet have anticipated. Neela, what are you watching for in the new year to keeping an eye on? Well, I think it's a great list that Catherine just said. I'd add one thing, and that's the labor market, because uh, as much as consumers have driven growth. It's really because they were supported by this strong labor market. And what I see when I look at the data that we have at ADP is that there's no clear driver or industry that is going to set the tone for next year. Unlike this year, where leisure and hospitality, restaurants and bars, mom and pop uh, uh, restaurants really drove hiring over the course of the year and even last year, that has slowed. So who? what's going to be the new industry? Is it going to be tech? Is it going to be healthcare, the verdict is still out. And without a clear driver of what moves this economy forward, you could see that this consumer strength starts to kind of fray at the at the ends here. Before I let the two of you go, real quick, who gets the credit slash blame for this economy as we head into this election year? Catherine? Um, I would say Supply chains unwinding themselves is a large part of it, but the Fed gets a lot of credit. Um, you know, their theory that they could take some of the heat out of the economy and out of the labor market labor market through reduced job openings rather than layoffs and rising unemployment turns out to have been correct. So if we are able to escape this, peri- this period of elevated uh, inflation without falling into recession, I think a lot of credit goes to the Federal Reserve. Last word to you, Neela. Agreed. I think the federal, uh, the uh, FOMC, the Federal Reserve policymakers can have that glass of champagne on New Year's Eve and not feel guilty about what they've done and actually feel pretty proud of it. Um, but I'd also give some credit to Main Street. It's really small businesses that create and created the, the bulk of net new jobs and it's consumers who drove the economy. So we should all like have a raise a glass for ourselves for keeping this economy growing despite pretty strong price growth. Here's to the American consumer, Neela Richardson at ADP and Catherine Rampell at the Washington Post. Thank you too and happy new year. Happy new year. Happy new year. Wall Street today was down for the day, but up way up for the year. We'll have the details when we do the numbers. 
One of the many political and legal fights coming in the new year will be over drug prices. For the first time ever, Medicare will have the authority to negotiate for lower drug prices. A 2003 law previously prohibited the federal government from bargaining directly with drug makers. Marketplace's Lily Jamali reports that these talks will take place as pharmaceutical companies try to stymie the process in the court, and the stakes are pretty high. The Commonwealth Fund's Gretchen Jacobson says one in seven Medicare beneficiaries surveyed this year reported not filling a prescription due to costs. Skipping prescription drugs has long-term effects on people's health. And more than half who put off care said their health problems got worse. This means higher costs over the long term for both Medicare beneficiaries and the Medicare program. Drug makers have long used monopoly power to extend their patents, according to Yale Law professor Amy Kepshinsky. She says they've been able to set prices for years beyond what patent laws intended. And before something like the negotiation program, it was very hard to address those abuses. Medicare's new powers to negotiate drug prices will apply to just 10 medications for now, including treatments for heart disease and diabetes. But negotiating lower drug prices will be a balancing act, says Chris Meekins of Raymond James. They don't want the cuts to be so significant that it encourages companies to exit the uh, Medicare market. Big Pharma has thrown the kitchen sink at the effort, according to UC Law San Francisco professor Robin Feldman, filing nine lawsuits by her count. Together, the lawsuits claim violation of more constitutional provisions than most people knew existed. The industry has argued the government is taking private property for public use without just compensation. If the government prevails, the black box that is Medicare drug pricing will be a lot easier for patients to understand, says Mariana Sokal of Johns Hopkins. Under the new Medicare negotiation plan, there will be a maximum fair price for these drugs. She expects patients will see potential savings in 2026 when, legal headaches aside, those newly negotiated prices are supposed to kick in. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. The new year is set to bring new transparency to workplace safety issues. An OSHA rule going into effect January 1st requires about 50,000 employers to provide more detailed reporting of workplace incidents to the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Those details will be published on the agency's website as part of an ongoing effort to increase disclosure and public accountability for workplace safety. That effort is challenged by ongoing budget uncertainties for the small federal agency. Marketplace's Megan McCarty-Carino has more. The new rule applies to companies with 100 or more employees in industries with hazardous jobs. Food production, manufacturing, healthcare, basically those jobs that have been shown in the past to be more dangerous. Jordan Barab, a former OSHA official during the Obama administration, says employers will have to report the details of basically any injury that requires more than first aid, something they were already supposed to be doing, but only for their internal records. What's different now is that this information is being sent into OSHA and then put on its web page. Previously, OSHA only had access to that information when OSHA uh, went and actually physically inspected a workplace. 
which doesn't happen that often. OSHA and its state partner agencies have nearly 2,000 inspectors to cover about 8 million work sites. An AFL-CIO report estimated it would take the agency 190 years to inspect all of them. So OSHA has to use its limited enforcement resources wisely, says Matthew Johnson, a professor of public policy and economics at Duke. It's really kind of wild that OSHA often flies blind, meaning that OSHA, up until very recently, just hasn't had information about what are the workplaces that are actually hazardous. Since 2016, the agency has required larger employers to report a one-page summary of workplace incidents. Now, more companies will have to report in greater detail about conditions that led to an injury. With greater disclosure of information comes more scrutiny. Gina Fonti is a partner at Holland and Knight who helps businesses with OSHA compliance. Certainly there's going to be some additional administrative burden and cost to the employer to have to comply with this. But she says the data could also potentially help companies to see where they stand compared to competitors, recognize patterns, and make changes before an OSHA inspector shows up at their door. I'm Megan McCarty-Carino for Marketplace. Coming up, red wine is more for special occasions. Does a long day at work count as a special occasion? But first, let's do the numbers. The Dow Jones Industrial fell 20 points, less than one-tenth percent, to finish at 37,689. The Nasdaq subtracted 83 points, almost six-tenths percent, to close at 15,011. And the S&P 500 gave up 13 points, almost three-tenths percent, to end at 47.69. For the week, the Dow added eight-tenths percent, the Nasdaq was up one-tenth percent, and the S&P 500 added about a third of a percent. And since today is not just the end of the week, for the year, the Dow added almost 14 percent, the Nasdaq was up over 43 percent, and the S&P 500 added 24 percent. 2023 has been a very good year to be one of the world's richest people, according to the Bloomberg Billionaires Index. Their combined net worth surged by $1.5 trillion this year, more than making up for the $1.4 trillion Bloomberg estimates they lost in 2022. Bond prices fell, the yield on the 10-year T-note rose to 3.86%, and you're listening to Marketplace. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash marketplace, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash marketplace now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash marketplace. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto 
the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. This is Marketplace. I'm Kimberly Adams. Although the bubbles may be overflowing this weekend, globally, people are drinking less wine. French winemakers in particular are struggling to sell the 8 billion bottles they produce each year. Young people are drinking less, and red wine in particular is kind of going out of fashion. The BBC's Will Bain reports. Both the drinking and production of wine are an integral part of French culture. But in recent years, vineyard owners like Bastien Mercier have seen demand fall, particularly among young people. He shows me his cellar, which is full of unsold wine. I've got more than half a million litres, which represents about 650,000 bottles. That's several years of production. His family own the Mercier Vineyard in Bordeaux in southwest France, but got into severe financial difficulties. Everything seemed completely black. In the evenings, my father and I cried. In October last year, we were declared insolvent. In December, we went into receivership. We were getting letters and phone calls from our creditors every day. The Mercier isn't alone. Thousands of winemakers in France are also struggling. Export sales were affected by Britain leaving the European Union and President Trump's decision to impose a 25% import tariff. But there's also been a big change in drinking habits. Jean-Philippe Perruti is from the consultant's Wine Intelligence. There are less than one in ten French adults who would drink wine more than three or four times per week. So daily or almost daily. 40 years ago, it was about half of the French population. He says young people now drink half as much as those aged over 55. And they're also turning away from red wine. At Café Carnival in Bordeaux, I speak to friends Pierre Arquette, Juliette Beaumont and Amélie Corbett about wine. When we drink wine, it's a party rosé. Red wine is more for special occasions, for a meal. I don't like red wine. I prefer white. It's too bitter. I like wine, but I only drink it with my family. I drink beer with my friends. The winemaker Bastien Mercier says that's pretty upsetting to hear. Where is French identity? Where did we go wrong? I think the answer is that we have failed to educate the new generation to appreciate these things. The French government is now spending millions of dollars helping vineyard owners dig up their vines. They'll receive just over $6,500 per hectare and can use the land for something different. Alain Seychelles is the president of the Bordeaux Wine Council. It's necessary for the industry as a whole to bring production in line with commercial capacity. But he doesn't believe it's the end of the French wine industry, just an unavoidable evolution. We need to broaden the spectrum of Bordeaux wines, increasing the production of white wine and rosé wines. Also on the red wines, inventing new styles. Some winemakers are also concentrating on producing premium red wine, as the older people who make up most of the market have more disposable income. One of those is Estelle Roumage, who owns Chateau Lestrine. I sell less of the entry-level red wines, and I sell more of the wines that have been aged in barrels or have more complexity to them. And winemaker Bastien Mercier has another idea up his sleeve. He's not just selling the wine for parties now, 
He's attracting more customers by hosting them himself in out-of-town locations. Think red and white checkered tablecloths, fresh bread, 300-gram steaks of French beef, all of that with strings of coloured light bulbs and music. He says he's determined to fight to save his business and France's global reputation as the home of the wine industry. I'm the BBC's Will Bain for Marketplace. This time of year, it's not uncommon for pants to fit a little more snugly than usual. No judgment here. But there was a thread on the app formerly known as Twitter the other day about one reason that dress pants, particularly tailored men's dress pants, don't really fit anybody like they used to. Here's the author of that thread to explain. My name is Derek Guy, and I'm a menswear writer. The thing to understand is that braided wear clothing really started around the mid-19th century. Before that, most people had their clothes made in the home, or if they could afford one, they'd go to a tailor. Which means that the trousers were made for you. They were custom-made for you according to your posture, your build, you know, how you like your trousers to fit. But in the kind of old way of making things, after the pattern was drafted and after the garment was sewn, it would undergo another step that involved a heavy iron. It was known as ironwork. If you think of your own build, if you're standing upright and you looked at yourself in the mirror but from the side, you'd notice that your legs are not completely straight. You know, they have a joint in the middle, your knees, and they have more muscle mass on your thigh than the back of your thigh. And then you also have more muscle mass on the back of your calves than the shin. So this forms a kind of S-curve shape. And this normally wouldn't be a problem if you wear very full trousers. But most people wear something a little bit slimmer. And what ends up happening is that the trousers end up catching on the front of your thigh and the back of your knees. From a tailoring perspective, that's not a great fit. What you want is a very clean, straight line, and historically that was done with a very heavy iron. The tailor will shape one leg by pushing the top part forward, and then they will push the bottom part backwards. So when you actually end up looking at the trousers, you get an S-curved shape. And if you're living in the U.S., there's essentially no one who really does this anymore. Well, on some level, it doesn't really matter. There are many, many aesthetics where you do not have to care about ironwork. But, you know, to some degree, it's a bit of a shame that, you know, this, this art of making perfectly fitting trousers is disappearing. We are moving further away from the process of how clothes are made. We're right at this cusp where clothes are kind of filling out again, and usually the youth leads fashion. So I th- assume in 2024, 2025, this will probably be less of an issue. As you widen the trousers, the less likely your pants are going to catch at the front of your thigh, the back of your calves. But the creation of rated wear clothing and the loss of custom tailoring also means that some of these very niche skills like ironwork have become increasingly rarer 
and more difficult for a person to find in their local place. Menswear writer Derek Guy there. You can find him on X at Die Workwear. This final note on the way out today, Lily was talking earlier in the show about drug prices. Despite the ongoing efforts of the Biden administration, prices for more than 500 drugs will go up in the new year. According to Reuters, big drug makers including Pfizer, Sanofi and Takeda Pharmaceutical will raise prices on more than 140 different brands. Some drugs will be getting cheaper, though. Prices are set to drop on some treatments for asthma, herpes and diabetes, with some insulin products decreasing more than 70 percent. Our theme music was composed by B.J. Lederman. Marketplace's executive producer is Nancy Fargali. Donna Tam is the executive editor. Neil Scarborough is the vice president and general manager. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you next year. This is APM. Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking, a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts.